Welcome to the Business of Film. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, this is this is great. This is the first time we're actually doing this in this this office setup here. I, I might do it more. We'll, we'll see how this goes. This it is cozy. It's co it's because I got a big chair. You like these big leather chairs? I like chairs? the big leather chairs. You know, um, because I spend so much time behind a desk with the ergonomic chairs, not right. so comfy. <laughs> so okay, um, this episode. First of all, our audience doesn't know who you are. Maybe you can just okay. take a minute, tell them who you are and, and what you do. Okay, my name is James Nadler. I am currently a writer-producer of television. I also am chair of the School of Creative Industries at, at Ryerson University. Great. So what is the... and I, I, Look, what I want to talk about, because yeah. it's a big topic for me, is education, specifically film education. And uh, I think you are uniquely positioned being somebody who's both in the industry as you know as, 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 as a writer producer but also somebody who sits basically at the head of a faculty about film the, uh, the, uh, the creative uh, well, industry creative, which actually uh, actually beyond film includes television new media as well right music also so we look at we cover all that but previous to creative industries I taught at, at RT School of Media um, which was television and I've taught the business of producing for many, many years. So just from a high, high level, what do you see as the current state of quote-unquote film education and the value of going to a film school? Because I, I think no, there's a, a lot, question. lot yeah. of people, you know, 18 years old, they're trying to decide what their next step is. And I just kind of want to make that the jumping off point. What do you say to those people who are trying to figure out, okay, what should I do with my career? How should I start my career on an educational path that's the way they decide to go? For sure. And, and film school can be seen as being really broadly described because there's different types of film schools. And it's whether it's television or film, or in our case, more on the business side, creative industries. So part of it is you have to step back and say, what do I want to eventually be? If you want to be a director, and that is your dream, then it makes sense to go to a traditional film school, uh, an NYU, a USC, um, that, that kind of school, where, you, where it's really about the craft. You're learning the history of film, you're learning um, image arts at Ryerson's another example. You're learning the history of film, you're learning the, the context, mise-en-scene, the craft of film, the art of film. If you want to be a producer, then there are a lot more, a lot more paths and and some new paths that didn't exist five years ago. So you could go to RT School of Media, which is great for for television or film producing. You could go to the states, in which case you usually would have to do a master's as well, because their undergraduate programs are not as strong as the ones in Canada, um, and their master's programs are prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. Or you could take the business route. Um, creative Industries is a great example of people who are going to do it that way. So it depends on what your goal is. Um, and then it's also, it's not just the education, it's what you do while you're being educated. It's if, if um, someone wants to be a screenwriter, they can go to screenwriting school, they can go to a film school undergrad, they can go to a master's program, but if they're not writing, it's not going to make a difference. Right. It's that 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in Blink. Right. So you have to write 10,000 hours worth of scripts to get even close to becoming a writer. Right. So it's that experience. So it's a mixture of things. 
but schools that were, are geared like creative industries towards the business side of things and the industry side of things, those are really new. So we've only been in existence for four years and we're already seeing that our students have a leg up if that's what they want to be. And, and why do your students, why do you feel your students have a leg up? What are you actually seeing as the thing that they're coming out of the program that they're able to achieve that say somebody who hasn't been in the program isn't able to yeah. achieve? Well, and, and again, they're not going to be able to, they're not, they do not have a leg up if they want to be screenwriters or directors or art directors or... So you really got to separate the craft of, of say, in this case, the, the, art, of the art, of the art. But, but I do want to talk more broadly as yeah. well, but just for the purpose of this yeah. question, we are talking in the film milieu, you're very much separating the craft of filmmaking from uh, the business or the producing side of Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And so on the business and producing side of, of, of film or television or new media, um, and I don't see the I don't see there being silos between them really. I see mm -hmm. them as being pretty much you move from one one uh, sector to the other pretty fluidly now. In 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 those cases, um, coming out of a school with a business background to it, you understand financial accounting, you understand financing, you understand project management, you understand um, creative collaboration from a theoretical and a practical point of view. So you understand the management and working with creative people um, in a deeper way than if you've just sort of done it on set. Right. Where you're seeing kind of, okay, this is how it works, but why does it work this way? So I think that's the advantage, to be able to look at the financing side and the management side, as well as understanding how to really get the most out of creative people, working with creative people. Whereas if you wanted to be the director or the writer or the whatever, then you'd be more advocating going to, uh, I'd say, a, a, like an NYU or something that specializes in those craft type things? Um, well, it's a mixture of craft and yeah. business. Yeah. NYU, um, RTA, Image Arts, UCLA, because if, you, if, that's what, if, if your dream is to become a screenwriter, you have to write scripts right. and you have to work with professors and industry people who are in that milieu on the creative side. Right. Um, most successful Canadian producers, um, less so in the States, but in television in Canada, most of them have an understanding of both the business and the creative. In the States, you can, you can differentiate more. You can, you can say, you know what, I'm a creative producer. I don't have to worry about the financing. Uh, large, I'm gonna have a studio deal and my agents and my managers in the studio They'll worry about the financing. I can just concentrate on the creative. In Canada and other countries, I'm not not just I'm right, France, right. Germany, Australia. Well, I mean, people who are listening to this are listening all yeah. over the world. Yeah. yeah. So in in a smaller market, right. once you get outside of of the U.S. and China and India, you do not have that. A bit, you do you have to be able to put on both hats if you want to become a creative producer and run your own shop. Right. So uh, in when, when you talk about the creative industries in general, because yeah. you're the head of yeah. a department which is more than just film, you're also yeah. talking about uh, music. Music, fashion, yep. publishing, journalism, um, any, any industry, um, video games, any industry where the end product is intellectual property and creating an experience, experiential goods. That's right. the academic term for right. it. Really? Is that actually what you call it? Experiential Ex goods? Experiential goods, yes. <laughs> I know. It's 
stuff we watch and listen to. Okay. And read. Right. Okay. That's and where. That's, right. That's how I think of it. Right. But the if you put that all together, it's experiential goods. And so in all these other, it's because I I don't look legitimately. I don't really know all that much about the music publishing world. I don't yeah. know that much about journalism or fashion or any of these other these other places. But I suspect that people who are who are listening to this would you know might find that interesting. As well, because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of creative people who are interested in, in music or in music publishing or in journalism or whatever it may be. How does, how, do you, how does the school sort of, you know, get your feet wet in those environments? What does well, it do practically for, for, for students? No, and, and a couple things. One, we're lucky because at Ryerson, uh, we're in the faculty that has all those schools, School of Fashion, School of Interior Design, School of Journalism. So our creative industry students, they take up to a minimum of 12 courses in other faculties, in other schools. So they could take um, six courses in image arts about traditional film or six plus six courses in fashion um, during, before they graduate. So they can experiment and those classes are, are taught by practitioners in the field. They're more geared towards the industry. So we have the best of both worlds. They have a... We, we give our students a really strong foundation in the business right. and the creative industries in general. And then they get to dip into at least two sectors. Plus then we bring them back for their final year and we send them out to work with companies in the creative fields. And, they have a, and we have a strong internship program, which is really important. All right, let's talk about internships. Yes. Because I, I, I'm a very big believer that the way to really get ahead especially in a creative industry, is to intern, uh, at least when you're beginning, to, to get in front of people who are influence makers, people who, who have the, the connections. How strong is the internship program and, and how important, how much value do you as a faculty put on it? Well, we put, we put a tremendous value on it and it's very strong. Our internship program is required. You can't right. graduate without doing an internship. We set up our internship between... Um, third and fourth year in the summer so that they don't, so the students don't have another, um, any other academic requirements, they can work full time, minimum of six weeks, up to three months, it's up to them. Mm -hmm. um, we just finished our first, because we're a new program, we just finished our first batch of interns and 40% of them are already working at the companies where they interned, either part time, some of them are working full time. I don't know how they're doing it because they have five courses in order, Still, and they have eight weeks before they complete, but there are a couple of people working full-time right. at their internships, um, or actually paid. These are people being paid post-intern. So they're working in paid positions, either part-time or full-time, having completed their internships. Amazing. So that's, so, so that's their first year. So we're very happy with that. So, and also, um, a lot of schools, what they do with the internship program is they go, okay, do your internship, and then that's it, off you go. And, but we bring it back into the classroom. So in their final year, um, they have a course where they actually have to do research about the company that they interned at. So they, under, so they take their experiences right. and then apply them and understand them more deeply. And the current course that I'm teaching, they have to, do, they have to analyze the company in a different way. And again, to understand, okay, what was that experience and really reflect and understand what they learned. Because you can go through an internship and you're dealing with just like putting out fires, day-to-day -day stuff, and you never get the chance in that six weeks to really sit down and think about, okay, this was my first job. 
What am I it's taking funny, away I rem- from it? I remember my, my, my first job, it was at a very large company yeah. um, in Canada. Was This was back in the year 2000. It was Alliance Atlantis. And I remember that my boss at the time said, because you know, we were applying for a lot of tax credits at the yeah. time. And they said, look at the budget. And I'd never been on a, I'd been on a film set once, but like as an extra. Yeah. And um, he said, do you want to go and do you want to do the, 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 the tax application in order to do that you've, you've got to uh, you know do all this number crunching whatever fast fast forward I'm looking at the budget and I look at the damn thing I'm like there's a gaffer it was a best boy there's all these no bloody idea what yeah. the hell I'm looking at none practically yeah. uh, which is funny but just just you know whatever uh, as, as some guy just getting into the business I mean I don't know whether the, the, the students that are coming into these uh, faculties actually really understand the, the film business or it's all just like this, this dream, and they really haven't put their finger on what the hell it's all when, about when, yet. When there's Is it se- like a foggy if, haze? If, if you're a 17 year old kid, right. or 18 year old kid, and for anyone who's out there who's a kid, I apologize for calling you a kid, right. a young person, whatever you are, and and you love movies or you love television, you're looking at it from the outside, from a viewer. Maybe you've read some books on it, but you haven't, unless you have, there's some kids who were actors as kids. So they might have some more onset experience. Right. But you don't have a lot of onset experience. Um, and it's interesting because one of the assignments, when I do business of producing, one of our assignments is, okay, now you have to do a full budget. And by the time my, my, my guys finish that assignment, first of all, they're very tired and they're very cranky. But once they finish doing a full budget for a year's, of season of a series, they know who the gaffers are because they've had to do the research and phone up the the guild and say, so um, what's 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 a gaffer? So I used to imagine that phone call calling the union being, what's a gaffer? You know, it's, it's some <laughs> like, some of the some of the guilds in town. Right. They 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 go, oh, it's um, it's around February. We're going to be getting the calls from business of producing right. now. They actually have people who expect the calls. Really? That's fine. Uh, and some of the supply houses too because there's some supply houses who every year get the calls right. about, okay, I need to figure out how many cameras I need. Can you help me out? Okay, so one step back. The student, the, the person who's looking, they have $10,000. I don't know how much Ryerson is or whatever. I, I'm, it, not, I'm it, not asking. No, no, it's but, Canadian. It's around, it's around, it's around um, $12,000 for the okay, year so, tuition. Okay, so but not, not far off. And yeah. in the U.S., uh, I, I, these, these courses, I assume, are either going to be more or oh, much more, much yeah. more, like it'd be probably thirty, forty thousand dollars. Okay, so the student, whether you're in the U.S. and you're looking at a, you know, a, a thirty thousand dollar, you know, nut, or you're yeah. in you're in Canada and yeah. it's a twelve thousand dollar a year, yeah. you know, it's cash you got to fork yeah. over. What do you say to that person? Take the money and make a film, your first film with it, versus, or two films, or three films, or four films. Because they can do that now well, versus go to school, and I, I ask okay, that out of, well, okay. out of, with a first, lot of respect. Okay, for no first thing. Yeah. First thing is um, let's 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 talk about RT School of Media. Sure. Um, so you go to RT School of Media, you get access to all the equipment. Mm-hmm. So that ten thousand dollars is giving you access to top end cameras, edit suites if you need them. Though everybody edits on their Mac Pro now. Um, and it also gives you access to other people to work with in terms of your, your, your colleagues, your, your fellow students, 
and it gives you some guidance in terms of the props. So you're getting more material. You can still go and shoot on um, a YouTube video on your web on your on your cell phone on the weekend, but you're given you're given other people to work with, and and film and television, um, they're not solo games. This this is teamwork. So you have to learn how to work with teams. Mm -hmm. I also think that if I were 17 or 18, um, and again, I say this with greatest respect for anyone who's 17 or 18, their life experiences are not as rich as when they're, as when they're going to be 22. Right. So, so there's some exceptional people, yeah, like the Spielberg fellow, who when he was like 18, he was fully formed as a filmmaker. But what, what do you have to say? What you have to say may be not as rich. Going to university, it's not just taking the uh, craft class. It's also taking English, Shakespeare, French, Spanish, meeting a girl, meeting a guy, growing up a bit, um, figuring out where the cafeteria is. There's like life experiences right. that, that will make for richer stories. Um, and also, hopefully, um, probably less so in the States, but definitely in Canada, you get exposed to other people's ideas. And so it's a question of, Oh wait, I you know like I just read Conrad, Heart of Darkness. That that's a great theme. That's a great story about man journeying to the the center of the black hole of his soul. That's a that's something you won't necessarily encounter in high school. Right. But you might encounter in English five class. Uh, I, look, I'm, I I legitimately ask the question because I think it's a I think it's an important question yeah, to ask. For I sure. also believe just personally that yeah. the greatest value isn't necessarily, you know, the, the, the cameras and, and, and the equipment. I, I think it's the people. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if anybody were to ask me, not that my opinion counts for much, but I think that, that it is, it's the people that you surround yourself, that group of people, that interaction, that networking, which is just, yeah. is so, which you really, it's hard to get that, to, to, to replicate that. Well, experience. outside, if you're not if you're not part of some institution, well, because yeah, it forces you, yeah. it forces connection in a well, way. That yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's certainly because you have uh, group projects. Yeah, and um, everybody survived on a set knows how how dramatic the emotions on a set can be. Yeah, maybe it's better to to get into those big creative fights mm -hmm. when when there's when there's nothing so at stake. As you know, like early on, learn how to solve conflict. And also you get context too um, at university. You get to understand not just how to point the camera, but why you're pointing it. Not how to deliver a line, but why this line. Mm -hmm. So like the, that sort of richness of the background of, of is, I think, important. So let me just segue over to, sure. to another topic, which is kind of your intersection and experience with, uh, with the industry. I mean, being... Yeah. You, as, as you said it at the beginning, you're, you're, you're a writer, you're a producer, you've yeah. been in the business now for, I, I don't know, many, many, many years. Uh, 25, 30 years. Okay, so anyway. Range, somewhere in that range, yeah. So what are you experiencing right now, 2017, as somebody who's been in the business for a long period of time? Yeah. What, is, what is the greatest hardship that you're experiencing right now as somebody who's a, a working practitioner in the business versus, say, what it was... Not that it matters, but I, I'm curious, sort of, what, like the, the change that that that, that you've yeah. seen, and the walls that you're that that you're bumping up against. Because I imagine that those walls, whether you're whether you're you're 20 or whether you've been in the business for 20 years, those walls are the same walls. Well, no, they're different walls. Oh, okay. The walls, the walls yeah. have changed, and some walls have come down, and some walls have gone up. So, 
Um, going back to if if I were eighteen, nineteen now, I'd be shooting YouTube videos. And if um, if you are doing guerrilla style short comedy films where the physical expectation where it could be looking a little rough but the barriers have gone way down since I started because you don't have to shoot on film anymore you can shoot you can sh you can shoot a great film on a cell phone if it's the right topic and you can get your work out there onto YouTube now can you make money at that that's another question that's a tougher question but there is at least that barrier to like experimenting and getting your stuff up on the web and having people see it and getting your 2,300 hits, mm -hmm. that's gone, that barrier has disappeared. So that kind of gatekeeping barrier has disappeared at the early experimental low cost area. You cannot do a Suits or Breaking Bad in that mode yet because there's, the costs will outweigh whatever income you can get through a YouTube or a Vimeo channel, mm -hmm. like that's ha that's happening. Um, in terms of someone who goes out and develops and sells television shows, um, and I've I've helped sell shows to Netflix, I've sold shows to to Canadian broadcasters, helped sell shows to U.S. syndicators. In terms of that, some of the so, corporate consolidation has made it harder in some ways. There are fewer, especially in Canada, fewer places to sell an idea. It used to be, oh, if... There's if, like three places to sell an idea. It depends on the genre. Like, right. But in, in the kids' world, um, if, you're doing, if you're doing a half-hour kids' tween comedy, there's two places to sell it. If you're doing preschool, there's maybe four. In the one-hour drama, there's three, really. Two and a half, maybe three. So, but that's down from like six or seven a few years ago. Now, on the other hand, there have been some new players who have come on online, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and there's a pro proliferation of, of channels in the States that are looking for one hour dramas. Um, so there's a little bit more openness there. So you can get in to talk to a TNT, you can get in to talk to an AMC, and they did not exist as buyers of TV shows, original TV shows, 15 years ago. Some of them not even five years ago. Netflix has only been around six years. That's a, and, they, and they are open, but of course there's a lot of competition. So I think it's some walls have come up, some walls have come down. The wall that keeps going up is cost. Because as, as, the, as audiences demand top flight quality, there's no getting around that. They're demanding the best writing, they're demanding the best look, the best production delivery. Though those costs simply keep going up. And because of that, it takes longer and longer to raise the complete financing to make a series. Unless you are a Warner Brothers or a Disney. That's actually very interesting because you you the trend was certainly or at least the the outspoken thought for uh, yeah. 2010, maybe yeah. 2008 to 2012, something yeah. in that range was costs going down. But really what we're seeing now is quality going up. And yeah. as quality goes up, the cost of that quality goes up. Well, well for sure. And, and, and so below the line, there's always a creep up anyways. Right. You know, um, and, we're, and again, we're talking about, it, it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like the, uh, you see this in 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 car in in the automobile industry too. It's like, it's either 
either it's really low cost, basic box of a car, it's very expensive. The stuff in the middle has disappeared. Right. So The stuff in the middle has disappeared dramatically. I yeah. Mean, I, I was just reading a, a Canadian company. Uh, they, you know, they, they re-upped a partnership with uh, another young company yeah. where they were doing you know, low-cost horror films. You, you, you may have read this recently as well. And I think they make their films for like, you know, 100 grand, something like that, 125 grand, something like that. Well, that, I would say that's not low-cost. That's micro-budgeted. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's, you know, but, I, but this, this is what I'm saying. I think it's micro-budget filmmaking, 100, 150,000 yeah. bucks. Or it's in the millions, yeah. multi millions, and 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 there really is nothing in between. No, and and like it's um, you used to be able to shoot a Canadian movie of the week, and you get like a twenty-two day shooting schedule, twenty-four day shooting schedule, and the, back in like nineteen ninety eight. Back in nineteen ninety eight, absolutely. And now a Canadian movie of the week, like a Christmas movie for Hallmark, shooting on twelve days or fourteen days. That's the equivalent of shooting a TV series, which is like shot on six or seven days an hour. But in a TV series, you can amortize costs, spread the overall costs over 13 or 22 episodes, you hope. But if you're doing a holiday movie, you can't amortize the costs. All the costs are there. So like, it's, a real, it's really hard to do something that's not multi-multi-million dollar. And also, then, if you uh, if you don't get above like six, seven million, you can't attract a star. Yeah, yeah, and yep. the, and stars are what sell feature films. TV, it's a little bit different because it's based on the idea, it's based on the network, and but even there, it's becoming more and more important to have stars. The announcements of what pilots are being picked up um, in the states have been coming out the last couple of weeks, and it's like Katie Couric has a pilot order. Katie Cook, like she's not a star in television, but that that's a name issue, and it's like they're they're mentioning who the performers the the names are that are attached to the pilots that have been ordered by the networks. Right, and that I see increasingly. Like Bradley Cooper will be an executive producer on um, what was it? Um, he did a one hour drama last year, science fiction one. And, but that was announced as Bradley Cooper gets an order, not like, oh, here's a great show. It, you're talking about the one that was the, the feature? The, yeah, the, the feature that got... Could, that could the, turn into yes, the, I the, just can't remember the name I of can't, it. I actually like that show, and I can't remember the name yeah. of it now either. But, yeah. yeah. Well, and also there's a huge volume of TV shows. We're in there's P- so much. I can't P- even keep TV, up. Yeah. And, there, and the, the average cost right now is around $3.5 million US an hour for a U.S. network or even cable drama. Um, and then you, of course, you go all the way up to Game of Thrones, which is like right. 12, 14, 16 million yeah. an hour. So um, it's hard for co- countries like Canada to compete in that, in that game because we don't have those resources. The most expensive Canadian TV show per hour probably was Orphan Black, around 3 million. But that's a rumor. I can't confirm it. And there may be one or two of the CBC, CBC shows uh, Shit's Creek, I think, has a very healthy budget right. uh, per half hour, right. but I can't confirm. Right. Okay. But that's again because how was that sold? That was sold because of star power, and if you're getting a Catherine O'Hara or a Eugene Levy, that those are stars. Those bring audiences in, and they should be recompensed for that value. 
So what is the question that you get most often when people approach you as in, again, like well, what's... That, that's, that's easy. The, okay. Okay. As, as a prof or someone in, in education, the question I get every week, it's from a parent, if my kid goes into film, are there jobs? That's like, that's the, the absolute question that comes up over and over again. And what is your answer? My answer is, it depends on what they do and depends on how hard they work. And yes, there are. But it may not be the jobs that we have traditionally thought of. And I'm not talking about screenwriting. It's like, like no one would, if you told me five years ago, you know what, there's going to be a lot of jobs in social media management for media companies. I, that was not on my radar. But that's an area, marketing is an area that's growing in, in the creative industries. And that's film, television, whatever. So those areas are pretty healthy. If you want to be in front of the camera and acting, you know, I will never tell anyone that there's jobs in that. That's like, that's like, that's like winning the lottery. Right. That's, that's, you have to be really, you have to be Meryl Streep. But there are, there are jobs. And also you have to be in it for the long haul. It's a marathon. It's not a short sprint. Right. And I don't think that the film or television industry is any different than any other industry right now. There are a lot of industries that are undergoing change. There are a lot of industries where it, where kids, journalism, I, where are the jobs in journalism? A lot of them are self-generated. It's citizen journalists. And then how do you monetize, to use that horrible phrase, how do you monetize that? If you're on Huffington Post, you're not getting paid. How do you turn that into a gig that makes money? I have some students who graduated recently who are making a living as YouTube stars. But really? that Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I have a couple, uh, there are two that are making a living at it. Well, how many, uh, this is interesting, how many views are they getting? Uh, well, one, one of the... one of the, Or subscribers. No, no, I, I, again, I don't know the subscribers, but mm-hmm. I know like one case, uh, one, one video went viral and that was two million views. And another, and, and then that, that person um, is paying her way through university on her YouTube videos. That's incredible. An, another person has subscribers and ongoing, ongoing um, sort of life and is actually making a living at it. Um, but, and, and also because of her work on YouTube has gotten writing jobs in traditional media because she writes sketches. So she's getting jobs. So they saw elsewhere. her work They online. saw her work online. You know, but that's, that's the and, variable these days. The variable right now is put yourself out there, do something that, that gains you some kind of recognition as being talented. People will see that and that will allow you to scale to whatever that next level if, is. If you can cut through the clutter, the discoverability right. factor. And look, for myself, I'm a writer, I'm a producer, I'm not an actor, I'm not a personality that would translate, um, you know, dropping twice a week on YouTube. Like, I'm just, you know, that's just not me. That wasn't me when I was 20, that's not me now. It, I, th- I think it is you now. Well, no, this, this is more... <laughs> right now, this, 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 this is This is you. more professorial, and it's a little bit easier, and... and but no, but in terms of like getting down that three-minute shtick... You're on YouTube right now. <laughs> I know I'm on YouTube right now, but I'm not expecting this to, to pay for my mortgage. That's the difference. That's it, I'm not here. Yeah. So, but the point being is that for, 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 for somebody who has that kind of I'm a performer kind of edge... Right. 
then yeah, it works really well. I don't know if it works so well for, for, for writers, because not all writers and not all producers want to be on screen, and, and nor should they be on screen. So I think for some folks it works really well. Um, if you come up with that great short film comedy, because dramas don't sell on YouTube as much, but a, a really great viral comedy, that will get you noticed. If you, if you do produce an incredible short drama, that can get you noticed too off of Vimeo. But, so that becomes your calling card. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone can do that calling card without having, getting, without having some training and without having a really great team. There are some people who can do it. And the, the YouTube aesthetic of talking just directly to the camera, that's a very specific type of skill and aesthetic. If you notice, there aren't that many YouTube, like sort of the, the vlog type approach of telling a story yeah. gets where everyone is talking to, that, to their, web, their web phone or their web camera. That gets really tiring after a while. You have to be really, the people who are good at it are exceptionally good yes, at it. Yes, absolutely. The people who are bad at it, you know, like even, even this, which is landing up you know, which obviously we're trying to put out now on more platforms so we get more people who are introduced to, you know, this conversation and the business of film and, you know, learning about filmmaking and all that kind of stuff. It's still incredibly difficult. I mean, it's still just, just like you were saying, the, 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 the discoverability factor of it. How do you get to the place where, like, I I know this content and the content that we've been delivering on business of film is valuable content. We've been having really interesting conversations mm-hmm. with people like yourself and with lots of really knowledgeable people. But it's really hard to 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 drill down. Maybe there's three hundred fifty thousand podcasts out Absolutely. there. Absolutely, it's, it's just the the amount of content is so massive that just finding sometimes finding what you like is well, or I, finding what you would like is 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 hard enough and and the algorithms on youtube or netflix they don't really help because i i i know that once i look at one particular thing i'll get the same screen rant stuff that keeps popping up over and over again so um there's some some you know some blogs that i are, are whatever you call them on youtube that i really like like every every frame tells a story which a guy out in vancouver does but it's like it's hard for me as a busy professional to mm-hmm. say, okay, I'm now going to spend the time to find the stuff you want to, the stuff I want to yeah. see much easier. And I'm going to go very old school, much easier to go into a library and, and rummage through the stacks. And then you find stuff or a newspaper. You can flip through in different sections and find things. Paper, but paper, very hard because there's so much and so repetitive on the internet. Yeah. Yeah, it it does it does certainly silo you to what yeah. you to what it thinks that yeah. you like. So b- before we go, can we just get crafty for a second sure. at the end? Because sure. I, I I know you like you are a writer. Yes. I want to talk about the craft of writing here Fair with enough. you. I don't want to leave this leave this conversation without without talking about that that craft. What is your what is your um, regime? I mean, you are a working professional. How do you find time? What is your what is your writing? Regime. Okay, well, this is going to frighten some people. I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, pretty much every day. And for me, the best time to write, the, my best creative work is, you know, like um, between 5.30 and 9 in the morning. Because that's a point where no one's phoning me, I can ignore emails, and I can sit down. I need blocks of time 
uh, that are undisturbed to write. And I and it's and there are peaks and valleys um, because I teach. I have more flexibility, obviously, in the summer when I don't. I'm not teaching classes. So, so um, June, July is 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 probably my peak amount of writing time. But I, I write all through the year, and I I am very unless there's a crisis or I'm launching a new course. I'm very disciplined about trying to write every day. And if I can't write every day, doubling up on the weekends. But it's like finding that block of time. It's not not very glamorous, but that's the first thing. Waking up at 4.30 in the morning, not everybody wants to do that. Do you have a goal page count, that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I have a goal, um, and I usually I try to do that. Now, again, there's stuff I write for myself that I'm developing for myself, and there's stuff that I write for other people on a freelance basis or in development. So obviously, if I have a deadline, I have a deadline. And, you know, I have to deliver, like, if I have to deliver an 11-minute script for an animated show or, or, or a 30-minute script for a live-action show or a one-hour show, I set deadlines, and, and I, um, I do page counts. I actually find it rewarding to put in my day timer, which is still paper, got to page 56, you know, mm -hmm. like, I, like, actually will write the page numbers in. Um, as a reward, so I can say, oh, you see, I got from page 17 to page 56, and it only took me two weeks. That's very rewarding. What if you have a shitty morning? What if you wake up, do you, do you have a shitty morning? Oh, for sure, yeah, you know, um, everybody does, like, that's not, like, um, if I have, if I have a shitty morning, maybe that's not a day I write, but, um, often, if I start off with a shitty morning, if I write, I feel a little bit better. I enjoy it. I actually enjoy sitting down and doing it, um, you know, and I the biggest thing is I have to avoid like any other writer those sort of daily distractions of email, social media, uh, life, and so on. The other trick I have, which um, which I learned from Isaac Asimov when reading one of his books, is if I'm stalled, I will go see a crappy movie, like one with vampires or zombies, like a B movie, right? And that always clears my head, and then I come out of that and I feel like I can write. Um, the other thing is, is that I'm, and I, other writers have this as well, if I have a problem with the script, I go to sleep, and then I will wake up and somehow my brain has found a solution. And so I, I have to do it right away. Are you uh, <clears throat> plotting or figuring out the arc of your story before you start? Do you know what the ending is? I, do you, I, how detailed do you get before I you I always have to know, the, if, it's, if I'm doing a, a script for myself, I always have to know what the ending is. I always have to have the last image and probably the last scene so I know where I'm writing to. And then, because setup is easy. You can always do a great setup. You can always do something really fun for your hero or your villain at the beginning. It's that middle that's hard for me. And it's like that act two is the toughest, like building the complications, keeping the plot going. Um, but if I know where I'm going, I can usually get there um, I also um, quite often overwrite, so like I'll write like eight pages and then cut back to five. Then do the next eight pages and cut back another six. So I do throw out a lot of stuff along the way, but I'm much more comfortable. When I write a feature script, it's always on spec. I, it's rarely that you get commissioned to write a feature script from somebody else in Canada. Um, I don't think it happens in the States very much anymore either. So, so I, so in that case, I, uh, I have to know the ending mm -hmm. and, 
And as long as I know the ending, I know what I'm writing for. And then I can throw stuff out in the middle. Uh, for, for TV, I much prefer to make sure I know where every act break is, and I am more likely to do uh, bullet points or beat sheet. I don't often do full outlines unless it's for a network, but I'll do bullet points, a beat sheet at least, so that I know what's, what scenes I'm going for. You mean like in terms of you'll... I'll, have, I'll you'll structure like- it out first. You break your 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 you break into Act One. Yeah, and within Act One, I'll list here are the scenes and here yep. are the bull here and within the scenes here are the main beats I want to hit. Oh, is it for, for the whole movie? No, 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 not for movies. I rarely do that for movies. I okay. do that for TV shows. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Because TV shows, you 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 don't you don't have the option of uh, you have to really keep it within a very a very strict structure. Great. Features, I, I give myself a little bit more latitude. A little bit more fun to meander all over the place. I'm better at the, but I'm better at the one-hour dramas and the 11-minute comedies than I am at the features. Okay. So yeah. that's, you know, however, I'm still yeah. um, writing a feature now. I'm on page 54. I, have, I do have a deadline. I have to get it pretty much done by, by the end of the week. So, like, it's going to be insane the next few days. Well, thank you for taking. So this yeah. is this is your break. This is from, my break. Right? This is actually my break. Uh, every every day this week, um, I've been up at like four thirty, in the office at six, and heading home between eight or ten. So, I can do that for another two weeks, and then I will have to take a nap. <laughs> and naps are good. Naps are very. And naps good. are good. Twenty to twenty five minutes. Yeah. Is the perfect time for a nap. Absolutely, but I think my nap will probably last for a little bit longer than that. <laughs> any uh, b- before we go, any anything that you would like to leave our listeners with in terms of uh, thoughts about the business, writing, filming, just uh, anything that comes. Well, just, just on the craft side, it's like what I would recommend is people tend to pigeonhole themselves, and they and they want to say, you know what, I just want to. All I want to do is comedy. All I want to do is one-hour dramas. You know, the industry will pigeonhole you enough. And I'm a great believer in you. Can, any story finds its, itself in a different genre. Like, there may be a story that's great as a reality show. There might be a story that's great as an 11-minute kids show or a one-hour drama or a feature film. So if you have the story and you love the story, then then say that's the story I love, and then figure out, okay, where where would this fit best, and then write it in that form. Don't try to jam the story. If you, th- if you identify yourself as a half-hour comedy writer, don't keep trying to jam the story into half-hour if it really should be a feature. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my best advice. You find that people try and take a story and put it into a format like you, you sorry I'm like I just want to be clear like yeah. you, you actually find that that students or, or people that you work with the, are trying to force their idea into a format that is, that is not best for that's exactly right and so they'll, they'll because because let's say they let's say they think they have an opportunity to sell a half hour comedy to CBC so they'll come in and they'll say okay here's a half hour comedy but then does it have the legs to be a series maybe it's a great half hour comedy as a one-off, or maybe it's really a great half-hour comedy because you'll tell the entire story and the character will will go and do that incredible funny arc that it really should be a feature. And, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Just end it as a feature. And there are a lot of people who uh, think features still are the great art form 
of the televisual age, and but maybe it's better as a one-hour drama. Like it's, but it depends on the nature of the story. All right. Thank you for taking the my time pleasure. This, this was fun. Yeah, this you, was fun. Yeah, not too stressful. We we, we made no, it not okay. too stressful. Yeah, it's like, pretty laid back. It's pretty yeah, laid back. Look, I give lectures to two hundred and five people. Like two hundred and five. Very specific. Well, that was the largest one I've ever done. Oh, okay. So um, so like yeah, chatting uh, with one human being in a small room is that's okay. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it, James Nadler. Thank you very much, Jesse. All right. Okay.